The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Welcome to the Friday edition of Passion, where just about anything goes. Uh, we talk about sex in the news and all kinds of other stuff. Plus, I'll share uh, your texts, your thoughts, your comments. Coming up after 10.15, we'll talk about the rewards of staying single. Some research on that. And should couples treat sex as a reward that could be a whole hour's topic but i'll leave that one up to you uh keeping a relationship healthy when we are together 24 7 those are some of the things we'll talk about but first time to check out our inbox your texts are always welcome connect with passion at 514-800 you can email me your questions anytime to lori at drlaurie.com so this was left up on the text board since yesterday my boyfriend has a low libido this is from a male I do not I'm very vocal about my sexual desires but I feel like I'm not getting anywhere please can you shed some advice this is probably the most common problem I see whether it's uh, heterosexual relationships or same-sex relationships often a desire discrepancy the problem is that people couple get into a cycle uh, over time where one keeps pursuing and asking and the other one keeps retreating because they start to feel like they are uh, pressured into it so even just a request becomes a, a pressure they feel guilt they feel shame so many feelings get involved in all of this so what's important is that you're able to have a discussion about it rather than just say I need I want you must uh, you know, and, and that kind of pressure to talking about the role that sex plays in your relationship in a very calm, compassionate manner, trying to find out what's up with your partner. We'd want to know where's the low libido coming from? Is this something new? Has this always been the case? Uh, and then being able to discuss it in a way that we can come up with a compromise. Oftentimes you'll have one partner who may want it way more than another, especially in long-term relationships. It happens a lot, but sex is one of those things that we can find a compromise on. But you can't if you're full of resentment for uh, your partner, either because you feel pressured or because you feel rejected, one or the other. So if, you're, if your relationship has it's taken a huge space in your relationship, I would highly recommend you speak to a therapist just to deal with the issue and for you guys to have a uh, some good sexual communication so you can discuss this in a, in a safe space. Uh, because oftentimes these discussions don't turn out so well because you have one person who's who feels maybe attacked and then there, there's defensiveness or they feel bad and there's guilt all kinds of feelings whereas when you're with somebody who is objective and could put it within a framework and could maybe walk you through it or get you each to uh, describe how you're feeling actually um bear text when i have sex with my wife sometimes i feel she will go crazy yelling and screaming she ends up shaking and peeing. I'm not sure how to deal with this. Is it good or bad? Okay. What you're describing is your wife being a screamer, uh, having her orgasms and, 
and being very vocal about it. There's no problem there. That's all fine. You say she's peeing. Uh, it's probably not urine. I, I would bet that she experiences what we call female ejaculation. It certainly will feel like peeing on you because it's a hot liquid that comes out uh, from her urethra, same place, but it is not urine. Unless specifically, like a couple of days ago, we had somebody whose fetish was that, right? That they, uh, the boyfriend actually liked when the woman peed on him purposely and, and she wasn't allowed, so to speak, to urinate prior to sex and, and would build it up so that she would urinate. That's a different situation. I don't think that this is what you're describing. It sounds like uh, female uh, ejaculation, first of all. Drew says, please give a shout out to my most awesome wife, Iris, 15 years together today. Uh, sadly, she's not here. She is in England for work. The same uh, for you, JD. Congratulations on. Okay. The show last night I liked very much. I have now good comprehension why I feel like I feel this person. I am not alone. I listened all week this week and my friend who understands English well, but does not talk well like your sh likes your show also. Sometimes we don't understand all of the time. I have a question and please answer with easy English words or in French. Sometimes when I touch myself to orgasm, much white cream liquid comes out. It is not like water or the same color. I read on the internet, but they speak of a clear liquid or squirt. C'est pas ça. Uh, blanc et très épais, very thick. I had an examination and everything is good. I was shy to ask the doctor, but not shy to ask you. So all, what it sounds like to me is that that's just simple lubrication. So when women are aroused, they get wet and some women get very wet uh, or lubricate and the consistency vary. And yes, it can be it can be uh, creamy, whatever. If it has no, if there's no odor to it, or if it's related just to the orgasm and just to arousal, then there's nothing to worry about. If a woman has excretions or lubricates, um, has lubrication that comes out during the day that is, uh, that has a foul odor or something else, that could be um, an indication of like uh, bacterial uh, vaginosis and that's something that you would want to. So let's see uh, congrats on 15 years someone says to JD hi Dr. Lori so nice of that guy to give a 15th anniversary shout out to his wife yes that was very very uh... if you have any questions and you want to uh, send them my way you know you could do that anytime send them by email at the beginning of every show I uh, I answer your questions so my email is Lori L L-A-U-R-I-E at drlaurie.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E. And remember that on Tuesdays, I spend the whole hour uh, going through all the questions that I don't get to at the beginning of every show. So if you don't hear your question at the beginning of the show or you might have missed it, you can always pick up the podcast. And the podcasts are found either on the iHeart app and you just go to the CJD page and you can find all the show's podcasts there. Or you go to my website, which is drlaurie.com, D-R-L-E-E.com, and you can uh, pick up the podcast there. Please know that all of your letters to me are anonymous. I know that many people sign them or that I see where the email's coming from, but please don't fret. I don't use your names. Just I want to keep all 
as anonymous as possible so that you can get questions answered. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Well, I think single people will be happy to hear the news, uh, the new research about the rewards of staying single. Apparently over time, people who stay single may experience overall more happiness and growth, which is interesting because we still have this stereotype a little bit about single people called singleism, right? Like racism, but single people are stereotyped, stigmatized, marginalized, maybe discriminated against because they've been single their whole lives. So we're not really talking about those that are single now post divorce or post widowhood, but people who choose, choose, maybe not so much choose, but who are single their entire Live. So what does that mean for how single life is actually experienced by those who never marry? Uh, in many important ways, single people defy stereotypes about their supposedly sad, lonely, and empty lives. People who stay single report more personal growth. People who stay single report more autonomy and self-determination. Women with no kids who stay single into their 70s are thriving. A study of more than 10,000 Australian women in their mid-70s compared lifelong single women with no children to four other groups of women, married with children, married with no children, previously married with children, and previously married with no children. The lifelong single women with no kids stood out from the other women in several impressive ways. For example, they were more optimistic, less stressed, more highly educated, more likely to say that they could manage easily on the income, more likely to be active members of formal social groups, more likely to provide volunteer services. And compared to married women with or without kids, they also had bigger social networks. On four out of about a dozen measures of physical health, the lifelong single women with no kids fared particularly well compared to the other women. They were least likely to be smokers. They were most likely to be non-drinkers. They had the healthiest body mass index, had the fewest number of diagnoses of major illnesses, uh, and on seven of the other measures of health, there were no uh, differences. The authors wanted to know whether lifelong single women with no kids were a burden on the healthcare system. In fact, those women were more likely to have their own private health insurance and they were no more likely to be cared for by family members. They were, though, more likely to use formal services such as meal deliveries and home nursing. These findings and others, the re researchers concluded that the view that these women constitute a social burden is not supported. Um, moreover, uh, in later life, lifelong single people find single life less challenging than previously married people. And lifelong single people may be better than the previously married at mastering the many tasks of everyday life. And staying single may pay off with lesser loneliness in old age, which is so interesting. So 
next time somebody uh, says, you know, something derogatory or stereotypically about people who are, who decide to stay single their whole lives, you can give them. Here's a big topic. This was uh, uh, written in uh, Psychology Today by a colleague, Dr. Ari Tuckman. I thought it was very interesting and something that you might I want to know what you have to say about this. And the question he poses is, should couples treat sex as a reward? And he writes, sex can be a good motivator, but it needs to be a happy offer. We all occasionally try to influence our romantic partner's behavior with the promise of a reward. This is part of the standard give and take of relationships and mostly works out fine. It's certainly better to start with the promise of a reward than the threat of a punishment. And of course, being open to our partner's promised rewards will probably encourage them to be more open to ours. But should we use sex as a reward to coax a partner into doing something that they might not otherwise want to? Is this fair game? Does it run the risk of corrupting your sex life? As with so much else in relationships, the answer is it depends about how you do it and how your partner feels about it. Might have been in this situation. I remember uh, talking to a friend and she would tell me like, uh, you know, her husband would actually say, well, um, I'll do this if you give me oral sex or I'll do this if you give me this. Uh, And she didn't take too well to that. So is it offered or requested? So how you and your partner each feel about using sex as a reward may depend a lot on whether it is offered or requested. Does one of you independently offer some sort of sexual activity as a way to sweeten the pot to get the other partner to pitch in on some boring or annoying task? Or is the request made and then the asked partner suggests sex as some sort of quid pro quo? In general, I would certainly encourage you to ask for what you want, Dr. Tuckman says. And if sex is the thing that will tip the balance on your willingness to do what your partner is asking, then maybe that is a win-win. This is especially true if it's a pretty easy sell for your partner to be up for some action. If everybody feels good about it, then this is an expeditious experience expeditious way to knock a few items off your to-do list. Risk in asking for sex or perhaps something else that feels like a similarly large gift for some partners to give is that you may get what you are asking for, but your partner may resent the high price. I like this analogy he makes. It's like buying an overpriced beer at a concert. You're happy to drink it, but you feel kind of ripped off. The question is whether your partner feels like they can really say no without risking you're not helping with the task they want assistance on, and then also risking you being grumpy about not getting laid, thus adding insult to injury. Is this freely given? The importance of a true offer is really important for something like sex, which works best as a collaborative process. After all, having a partner who is there in body but not in spirit is boring at best and creepily coercive at worst. 
If these somewhat forced encounters happen too often, they can make what should be a fun connecting activity into a chore during which neither person has a good time. For sex to be a joy, both partners have to want to be there. And asking or what have you doesn't really care whether you have a good time or not. But then that particular relationship bigger uh, issues. Sex life occurs within the context of your overall relationship. For things to be good in bed, they need to also be at least pretty good everywhere else. This is very important. Generosity of one kind can be rewarded with generosity of another kind. This may involve sex or otherwise. When it is freely given and both partners feel good about it, then it can make a good thing even better. This can be a good motivator for one or both partners to be good about some otherwise undesirable tasks. So if sweetening the pot with a bit of action ends with you and your partner feeling closer, perfect, go for it. Um, If we have to do them anyway, we might as well have some fun along the way. But it's very hard to feel sexually generous if you feel like you're being treated badly elsewhere. So just remember, in circumstances, this find it weird. People ask for sex from their partner. My wife and I, we just initiate and put sex as a reward or any sex is making love. That's wonderful. I, I'm so happy that this happens like that for you. But sometimes, especially when you have desired discrepancies, it, I always look at it as hunger. If one person, look at desire as hunger. If one person isn't hungry, they're not going to ask to go out to a restaurant. It's the one who's hungry that will mostly do the requesting. So sometimes that can happen where requests are made. One should ask, should have to ask their spouse or partner for money, sex, or permission for ever. That's way too much control. Except that sex is is something that I get it, the trading of it, that's a whole other situation. But if one partner is ha- it has less of a drive and it, you don't have that connection spontaneously whenever, uh, then sometimes one partner is left kind of asking and saying, could we, how about, would you like to? Um, and that's okay. And sometimes that has to happen. Not really on board with the sex as rules. It's super playful and lighthearted, no matter what. I agree with you on that. When it's, when it's a win-win for both people, that's great. When it is lighthearted, when it's fun in that context, I think it works really well. Uh, otherwise so much. Next up, how do you keep a relationship healthy when you're together 24-7? We'll talk about that. There was an article in People Magazine that I want to share with you, plus our stupid sex story of the day. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. For your stupid sex story of the day, I don't know if it's stupid or brilliant, but this woman, 33, earns about $170,000 a year selling her unwashed socks and running shoes. She's out of the UK. She calls herself a foot fetish model. Uh, She buys her running shoes for just a couple of bucks and then sells them. After someone complimented her on the beauty of her feet, Roxy Sykes, 33, realized she could break her way into the foot fetish industry. 
property investor, she decided to set up an Instagram page to see how true the interest in her feet was. And after reaching over 10,000 followers in a month, decided to listen to her fans. She's from London. Uh, she started selling shoes and socks on her social media accounts for 20 pounds per pair of socks and 200 pounds for shoes. Uh, she's been in the business for four years now. She claims she can earn up to 8,000 pounds in a busy month. That's a lot of dough. She said, after being told by a colleague that had beautiful feet, I was convinced to set up a social media account to show them off. But it wasn't until I started getting thousands of followers and messages about selling used items that I realized I could profit from it. I didn't show my face or anything at first, so I knew people were just interested in me for my feet. So it didn't feel too personal. But when I started selling, I got a real buzz from it and realized just how much I could make from selling shoes and socks from time to time. I know there are people listening now that are thinking I could do this. Uh, I realized how much money I could truly make on my busiest month where, where I saw over 8,000 pounds come in just for videos, socks, and shoes. Now I can never see myself stopping this. However old I get, my feet will always be able to make me money. After initially starting up her side project as just a social media account, Roxy knew she had to progress further if she wanted to keep up with the competition. She said, posting photos and videos of my feet was all well and good, but people always wanted more and wanted to physically own something to do with my feet. I would be in business meetings taking photos of my feet under the table and getting an influx of messages by the hour asking if they could buy anything. So I moved my business onto different websites as well as just social media and suddenly started making 2,000 pounds a week from just one website alone. Pairs of shoes that I would wear for two months would sell for 200 pounds and a pair of socks that I wore for a day would sell for 20 pounds. Then a single video of me just wiggling my toes would make 100 pounds. That's like $170 Canadian. I was really raking in a lot of money. Despite the industry sometimes being frowned upon and retaining a lot of stigma, Roxy claims that she loves the buzz she gets from the fetish industry. I really like what I do, and I think that's because I really got desensitized from it and saw it as work. I've never had any trouble getting into relationships because of what I do, and my friends and family are on board with it. It's great to be able to get home from a normal working day to know I can make a bit of extra money from a photo of my feet. The money is so good and it's so easy. There's no reason why I would ever uh, stop. And now she is mentoring other fellow fetish models. I'm assuming uh, you could get in touch with her, I suppose, if you're interested in this. Roxy Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S is her name. Of course, the family is on board with how much money is she giving them. Another one is she, she only wears shoes and socks once, then sells. I don't think people care, really. Uh, I can see myself selling my underwear because of my beautiful wiener. <laughs> Go try it. I don't know how many women are there to buy the uh, men's used underwear, but okay. Another one, brilliant. Yes, it, well, it's, uh, she's entrepreneurial. That's a lot of money for those socks and shoes. Amazing, but I wouldn't count on this business model lasting for decades to come or maybe even to come. Listen, not all she does. She's got a, a job as a property manager or something, but um, or something. Now, she can invest a lot of money. She's making a lot of money. 
So she won't have to do it uh, for pretty entrepreneurial of her, for sure. When it comes to being single, we talked about singlehood and all the rewards of people who stay single for life. Got lots of comments on that. Being single with friends with benefits, my married friends are somewhat envious, but I tell them I would change places with them in a heartbeat. Some just do not know how good they got it. Hmm. Uh, but who really wants to grow old alone? Everything just gets more painful the older you Well, not according to the research. The research actually does not uh, know that. And uh, our guy who's celebrating 15-year anniversary wants some ideas for uh, cheap ideas for gifts. He said, I wrote different love notes on our first Valentine's Day on pink stickies, cut them all into hearts, and stuck them all over the end. Uh, as I would say, if you want to go in the, the self stuff, create a coupon booklet, you know, where you say, this is a coupon for a massage. This is a coupon for me for a whole week. This is, you know, get, get creative with that and give her a, a cons that she can redeem. Why not? And when it comes to, um, sex and recovery, trading sex for chores or what have you nobody should ever control another human being using money sex or any type of uh i agree with you on that and on being single this is interesting i'm youngest looking in my age group of friends 50 to 67 better physical shape than they are and i'm the only one with no gray hair yet must be something to be single unattached no begging i hate the begging and i hate the carrot on yeah I, i'm sure Sounds like the vagina-scented candle. <laughs> I'm not sure that was the most brilliant of ideas by Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, yeah, I did the coupon thing, but thanks. I need something unique. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not feeling all that creative right now. So if anybody has any ideas of do-it-yourself gifts that uh, Drew can to his wife for their 15-year anniversary, please happy to uh, to get that from Coming up, how do you keep a relationship healthy when you're together 24-7? So People Magazine asked some therapists to basically talk about that, and they did a little expose on that, so I will share that. From the pleasure and the politics to the hangups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. So People Magazine asked a therapist to explain how to keep your partnership on track despite the constant close quarters. I know there's a lot of people who are together uh, 24-7. So I thought it was very responsible of them to do a little expose uh, on this, especially now six months in, what, almost seven months, right? At the beginning, I know it was the same for me too. At the beginning, many couples welcomed the chance to spend more time together, uh, less, you know, none of the commuting and long hours and, and all of that. So uh, it was kind of cozy and family meals and reconnection over board games and things like that. But half a year later, that together time might have started to feel maybe a bit smothering for some. It's understandable. Your romantic partner is no longer just your significant other, but now is a roommate, a coworker, a friend, and potentially the only adult you've seen on a regular basis in months. So seems a bit natural maybe to get a little teeny bit stir crazy maybe even a bit resentful when you're spending so much time with one person even a person you love uh, and so this is what 
why they decided to do the article. So some of the quotes, no matter how close couples are, they still need alone time. So rather than waiting until you feel annoyed with them, proactively carve out space apart each and every day, whether that's taking a, a walk alone or FaceTiming with a friend or relative in a room with the door closed. The important thing is framing your time apart as something that will benefit you, not something you're doing because you're sick of the other person. It's not, I, it's not, I want to be away from you. It's, I want to do something else. There's a big difference. So you want to be caring and sensitive in terms of expressing the emotional space you need, what will make you feel good rather than a rejection of them. So you can say something like, I love you, but I feel a lot of pressure in the morning. So that's a time I need some breathing room. Uh, and then after work, I'll be more able to relax and watch TV with you. For example, if you're sharing a small space and it feels like your partner is always in your way, uh, first you have to figure out your needs independently, both time-wise and space-wise. How many hours a day do you need to work? Where do you like to do your work? Where do you like to unwind? And then you have to sit down with your partner and look at uh, your schedules together and out, uh, okay? How can I improve our time together? So lots of people are together, but are they really together, right? It, it's not just, um, it doesn't really count, right? So just because you're in the same room all the time, are you, are you really spending quality time together? No. But what keeps couples connected, even though you're in the same place all the time and busy doing your own thing, uh, keeping the affection goes a long way. A kiss, a, a, a nice long hug, fit that in to your day, even if you've got lots uh, going on. And when it comes to uh, dating, you know, date nights kind of thing, well, you can't actually go to a movie or go to a restaurant, but think about what it meant, what date night meant. And it meant um, letting your partner know that you valued them to spend time with them, etc. And so you want to be able to do the same thing now. Let's make a date, even if it's to watch uh, Netflix, Netflix and chill for a bit for one night or something like that. Just put it into a, and then what if your partner isn't appreciating how much more you are doing around the house now that you're home so much? How do you make them realize that this is stressful for you or hard for you? So of course this comes back to communication. Important to tell your partner how you're feeling, making sure to focus on how you are affected rather than what you think they're doing wrong. Uh, you can tell that it, it's about using I statements, right? I'm feeling burnt out. I'm feeling overwhelmed by all the extra childcare, etc. Rather than say something like, you don't appreciate all the stuff that I'm doing around the house. So forget the you. You should eliminate that from your conversations. Statements should start with I, never you. The minute you start using you, you're putting the other person in, uh, on the defense. So how about showing gratitude as well. Try thanking your partner for the things they do, even though, even though they, these are things that they do regularly every day, whatever it encourages our partners, uh, and recognizes their efforts. So you need compassion for your partner and you need a lot of self. Last story I'm going to share with you is about graham crackers. Did you know what graham crackers were invented for? 
somewhat like the uh, cornflakes. I think it's the same thing with cornflakes. So graham crackers were not invented to make s'mores, you know, marshmallows and chocolate and all that wonderful, wonderful stuff. They were actually invented by an evangelical minister by the name of Sylvester Graham with the goal of controlling your sexual desires. So imagine that Graham crackers as a form of birth control. His aim was not to bring the world a campfire treat, but to rid us of our carnal urges and general evils. I'm not sure how a cookie does that, but the Graham cracker we know today would not get his blessing. It's not at all what the Graham cracker was back then. The 1800s were the beginning of the industrialization of food and bread in particular was affected by this. Bread moved away from being baked in the home with wholesome ingredients and became the mass-produced, nutrient-devoid loaves that are common today. To Sylvester Graham, this was a major problem. As a remedy, he marketed whole wheat flour, which came to be known as Graham flour, and encouraged people to bake their own bread, including his original Graham cracker recipe, known at the time as Graham bread. It was a bland, health nut loaf, the kind of dense brown bread we imagine that would make the most lustful teenager renounce sex altogether just to escape another slice. I don't understand how that would even work, even uh, remotely. But interestingly, he also called for a vegetarian diet and a good sleep regimen to set you on the path to God and tame your carnal desires. He believed that lust could cause diseases such as pulmonary consumption, spinal diseases, epilepsy, and insanity. While many regarded Graham as a nut which I think he might have been possibly an American pioneer in fad diets. Remember, he was one of the first to suggest a vegetarian diet. He did amass a following. Uh, luckily, though, his graham cracker got better and better and better, and it is the wonderful cookie that we all love to eat, especially around a so. That's a little bit of tidbit of bit of information. A fact you really don't need, but why not? It's still a lot of fun. That's it for us for tonight. Uh, like I told you earlier in the program, remember you can send me your emails if you've got questions anytime. Send them to me to lori at drlori.com. If you send them to me, please know that I will be reading them on the air. So I won't use your name, but uh, you're the one. Be in charge or try to be in charge of the, the identifying information so that I don't have to keep editing stuff out. Uh, you know, I try to protect everybody's uh, anonymity as much as possible, but you can be rest assured I will never. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Nicole Proano, our technical producer, Linda DeLisi, our passion researcher, and to all of you for keeping me company. Love ya. Uh, you can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Betito, B-E-T-I-T-O. Coming up next here on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a wonderful rest of the evening, an even greater weekend. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion. Love in Montreal City.